Robin Gecht was a contractor who recruited three of his employees into a violent cult. What followed would shock the city of Chicago as victims kept piling up. If you enjoy these episodes, you can explore more nefarious groups and the people who lead them on cults. New episodes air every Tuesday, free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of rape, mutilation, murder, and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Lorraine Borowski took her time walking to the office on the morning of May 15, 1982. No one liked working on a Saturday, and Lorraine didn't expect things to be busy. As she strolled through the streets of Elmhurst, Illinois, there was hardly anyone else in sight. So when a massive red van turned onto the street behind her, she noticed right away. It chugged along slowly for a while, matching her pace. It moved so slowly that it made Lorraine nervous. She instinctively reached for her keys, ready to use them like a weapon if she needed to. She told herself that she was being paranoid, but as the van pulled up next to her, a chill ran down her spine. The driver, a nervous red-haired man, rolled the window down and asked if she needed a ride. Lorraine quickly declined and picked up her pace, hoping he would drive on. He didn't. Moments after she told the driver no, the side door of the van flew open. Three men poured out into the street and swarmed Lorraine. They overpowered her, lifted her out of her shoes, and wrestled the young woman into the back. In a matter of moments, they were gone. The only traces left of Lorraine were the shoes and the keys she had brandished minutes before, now lying limp on the concrete. The Chicago Rippers had struck again. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a ParCast original. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Cults for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. This is our first episode on Robin Gecht and his small but terrifying group of Satanists, the Chicago Rippers. While the details of this case are based on first-person confessions and news reports from the era, the story of the Chicago Rippers was also part of the 1980s satanic panic cultural phenomenon. For that reason, we can't say for sure if Robin Gecht and his group truly worshipped the devil, or if they were just associated with other occultist groups at the time. This week, we'll follow Gecht as he grows from a teenager fascinated by the occult into a manipulative, murderous cult leader. Next week, we'll explore the miraculous circumstances that finally ended the Ripper's sadistic killing spree, as well as the lengthy legal battle that brought its squabbling members to justice. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. Little is known about Robin Gecht's early life, 
but it's clear he had a troubled upbringing. Gecht was allegedly kicked out of his home and sent to live with his grandparents. It's rumored that Gecht was forced to leave the family home because he molested his sister. However, a news story from 1982 reveals that Gecht himself may have been physically abused. He dropped out of high school to live on his own at age 16. Whatever happened in his early years, there's no denying Gecht had a dark side, even as a young man. At some point in his youth, he developed a morbid fascination with Satanism. His obsession coincided with an explosion of occult-themed media in pop culture. Paranormal films like The Exorcist dominated the box office, accompanied by the popularization of dark, heavy metal music. For many young people at the time, dabbling in Satanism was a harmless fad, more about aesthetics and adolescent rebellion than actual violence. But Gacht was different. He became obsessed with demonic possession, secret rituals, and ancient human torture techniques, delving deeper into these subjects with each passing year. Though Gecht kept his twisted pursuits a secret from his grandparents, they must have noticed his personality darken and split as he got older. Sometimes he was intimidating and manipulative. Other times he could be charming. In those moments, he seemed to be the perfect grandchild, mature for his age. But when he got angry, those closest to Gecht saw another side of him, one that scared them. Beyond his personality, Gecht started to compartmentalize his life more and more. He spent hours each night poring over satanic texts, but made sure to keep his obsession a secret. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Zari Ballard is a narcissist abuse recovery coach. She studied the correlation between the ability to compartmentalize and narcissism, which we know is a common trait in cult leaders. Ballard writes... The biggest benefit, of course, to compartmentalization is that the narcissist can behave one way while visiting one compartment and behave completely differently when visiting another. So on the surface, Gecht looked like a responsible young adult, but underneath, he was a budding Satanist. By his early 20s, he was a carpenter and electrician. In the early 1970s, at 19 years old, he married Rosemary Gecht, a devout Catholic, with whom he had three children. But Gecht and Rosemary's young marriage wasn't as perfect as it seemed. Rosemary was a waitress, working night shifts at a local restaurant. She confided in a friend that she often arrived home from work to find Gecht gone. She suspected him of cheating. While Gecht may have been cheating, he was also spending his nights performing satanic rituals. Like everyone else, Rosemary was completely unaware of her husband's occult interests, though it's not known exactly how he explained his late-night absences to his wife. He somehow managed to convince Rosemary to stay with him. She may not have fully believed his half-baked excuses, but Rosemary decided not to press the issue. After all, Gecht was a good father and a stable provider. She must have loved him enough to let him spend his alone time, however he saw fit. She never could have imagined he was reading about human sacrifices and blaspheming the God she was so deeply devoted to. 
Gecht managed to manipulate Rosemary into several questionable arrangements. For example, shortly after Gecht met 20-year-old Edward Spritzer, he brought him home. With little explanation, Gecht told Rosemary that the young man was going to move in with them. At some point, another new friend, Andrew Cocorales, also stayed with the Gechts. Rosemary was against the idea, but Gecht wore her down. Spritzer and Cocorales worked for him when he did construction, and Gecht claimed he was attempting to give them a better life. Edward Spritzer, a toothy redhead, spent his late teens on and off the streets. By the time he met Gecht, he'd been convicted of theft and stealing a car. Since then, he'd gotten by performing menial jobs around Chicago, including construction work for Gecht. After a few months, Gecht hired Spritzer full-time, saying it was a chance for the boy to learn a trade. Andrew Cocorales was another day laborer who had worked for Gecht in the past. He and his older brother, Thomas Cocorales, were soon regulars on Gecht's construction sites. Unlike Spritzer, the Cocorales brothers came from a stable Greek Orthodox family, but they shared an intense admiration for Robin Gecht. Others described all three young men as gullible and eager to please. They were in awe of Gecht's self-confidence. He had a business, a wife, and a family. He seemed to have everything figured out, and they looked up to him. It's possible Gecht noticed how pliable the young men were and began plotting to manipulate them early on. But perhaps Gecht had more innocent motivations. He may have seen a bit of his younger self in Spritzer and the Cocorales brothers, and remembered how Satanism had appealed to him during his wayward teenage years. Whatever his motivations, soon after they met, Gecht introduced Spritzer and the Cocorales brothers to his dark secret. He worshipped the devil. The young men were surprised by Gecht's revelation, especially considering how devoutly Catholic Rosemary was. But rather than be alarmed, they were flattered Gecht had confided in them. After all, the occultism craze of the 70s had carried into the early 80s as well. It wasn't unheard of for a person to claim to be a Satanist. At first, the men likely assumed that Gecht simply enjoyed reading about torture, human sacrifice, and the occult for fun. Little did they know, Gecht's interest in devil worship had less to do with alternative spirituality and more to do with a desire to rape, torture, and kill. So when Gecht asked them to take part in his worship, Spritzer and the Cocoraluses eagerly agreed. It sounded exciting, and if Gecht enjoyed it, then it was probably fun. Gecht likely knew what they expected, and for a while, he slowly eased the young men into Satanism. At first, he only exposed his young followers to the Dark Bible. The group became something of a strange book club guided by Gecht. He had spent years studying the Satanic texts and enjoyed sermonizing about the finer points of the ritual and the dark powers that could be achieved by summoning a demon. Then came the next step. In the middle of the night, after Gecht had put his kids to bed and checked to ensure his wife was at work, the carpenter revealed yet another secret to his acolytes. Hidden away in the attic was a makeshift shrine to the devil. Gecht called it the chapel. Spritzer and the Cocorales brothers were overjoyed. They felt as though they had finally gained their boss's complete acceptance. He had welcomed them into the most private aspects of his life. 
The young men were impressed by the chapel. The attic walls were hand-painted with red and black crosses. At the head of the room was an altar where Gecht's so-called trophy box rested, cloaked in red cloth. He didn't elaborate on what the mysterious box was for. All he told them was that the chapel was an unholy space for satanic rituals. Although they didn't know it, the young man had only reached the tip of the iceberg. Gecht had big plans. By now, Edward Spritzer and the Cocorales brothers were actively being groomed to carry out nightmarish crimes for Gecht. Supposedly, this was all in his quest to contact a demonic figure. Coming up, Robin Gecht and his crew terrorized Chicago with unprecedented brutality. Now, back to the story. By 1981, 27-year-old carpenter Robin Gecht was juggling two completely separate lives. To the outside world, he was an accomplished carpenter and a devoted husband and father. He was raising three young children with his wife, Rosemary, a devoted Catholic. But in secret, Gecht was the leader of a small satanic cult that he'd formed with three of his young employees, 20-year-old Edward Spritzer, 18-year-old Andrew Cocorales, and Andrew's brother, 21-year-old Thomas Cocorales. During the previous year, Gecht and his followers often gathered in his home, where he'd slowly introduced them to satanic teachings. He offered the troubled young men a sense of belonging they hadn't found elsewhere. They looked up to Gecht and believed he'd single-handedly saved them from a life of failure and insecurity. After careful manipulation, Spritzer and the Cocorales brothers were firmly under Gecht's control. He had acquired their unquestioned devotion for his grand plans. One night, the charismatic carpenter finally told his followers that they were ready to take their devotion to Satan to the next level. The young men were excited at first. For months, they'd been poring over satanic rituals together in Gecht's attic. The meetings were fun, but they knew Gecht was planning something big, and they wanted in. But they never could have expected what Gecht told them next. They listened with open mouths as Gecht revealed that he wanted the group to begin hunting and raping women in the name of their dark overlord. Gecht's initial explanation for the violence was cryptic. He said they would perform unspecified rituals on these women and bring a piece of them back to the attic as an offering. It was the ultimate test of the men's loyalty. Upon hearing this, Thomas, the elder Cocorales brother, grew frightened. He realized they would have to harm people, something the shy young man hated to do. But he was suggestible. He likely followed his younger brother's lead. This might explain why, despite his apprehension, Thomas remained by Andrew's side as Gecht preached his satanic messages. But no matter what his brother did, Thomas wasn't sure he was capable of violence. Unfortunately, Gecht had an answer for everything. He knew exactly how to intimidate Thomas. He told the young man that they had to do what he commanded. The devil could not be questioned. Gecht then switched tacks and made Thomas, along with his other two followers, feel guilty for doubting him after his past generosity. Eventually, Thomas caved and agreed to take part in the plan. He didn't want to disappoint the man that gave him work. 
with no further opposition on the night of May 23, 1981, Gecht and his crew set off into the warm Chicago night. They cruised Chicago in Gecht's red work van on the prowl for their first victim. Gecht appeared as confident as always, but on the whole, the group was inexperienced and had no idea how best to abduct a lone woman without being seen. Ultimately, they decided to drive to a seedy area in Chicago's north side, known as a meeting place for sex workers. That's where they encountered 26-year-old Linda Sutton, standing on the side of a desolate street. It's unclear if Linda willingly got into the vehicle or if she was forced inside, but she ended up handcuffed in the back of the van. They drove to a motel where Gecht instructed Spritzer, Thomas, and Andrew to gag the terrified woman and handcuff her to a bed. The young men hesitated, but Gecht refused to be disobeyed. He reminded them that the ritual was essential to their membership in his satanic church. He threatened them with painful reprisal from the devil should they back out. At his instruction, the group raped Sutton for hours. Then they brought her outside. Gecht then announced yet another disturbing step in their supposed ritual. He ordered Spritzer to sever Sutton's left breast while she was still conscious. This body part, apparently, was what they would bring back to the chapel as tribute to the Dark One. As the assault descended into ritualistic torture, Gecht watched with sadistic pleasure. For years, he had been dreaming of such a night as he immersed himself in black magic. He could hardly believe he found a group that helped him make it a reality. As far as we know, the attack on Linda Sutton was Gecht's first crime with his cult group. Though he didn't need accomplices to carry out his violence, he seemed to prefer it that way. In the book Serial Murderers and Their Victims, forensic psychologist Eric W. Hickey offers insight into Gecht's mind. Hickey writes, For some multiple killers, murder must be simultaneously a participation and a spectator endeavor. Power can be experienced by observing a fellow conspirator destroy human life, possibly as much as by performing the killing. Gecht dominated his victims because it made him feel powerful. But he didn't just want to control his victim. He also relished seeing how far his followers would go for him. He wanted to corrupt them. There was no line Gecht wouldn't cross. After the torture, the men disposed of Sutton's body near the motel, thinking she was already dead. Unbeknownst to them, Sutton was still clinging to life, only suffering an agonizing death hours later. In the meantime, her attackers returned to Gecht's attic, hearts pounding in their ears. Only one floor above where his young children slept, their leader placed the piece of severed flesh on his profane altar and instructed the group to kneel around it. Gecht then read satanic verses out loud. According to him, the ritual required them all to masturbate during the reading. Once finished, Gecht turned around and picked up the bloody breast from the altar. He took a knife out and cut it into pieces. The final step asked for the men to consume their victim's flesh, which all four of them did. Finally, after hours of gruesome savagery, the demonic ceremony was complete. 
Gecht saved the leftover flesh in a box and locked up the attic. Spritzer went to his bed in Gecht's house and Thomas and Andrew returned home all before Gecht's wife returned from her night shift. The next morning, they all woke up bright and early, still reeling from the events of the previous night. On June 1st, 1981, about a week after Linda Sutton's brutal murder, news broke about the body of an unidentified black woman found behind a motel. The body had no ID on her. The only clue they had as to who this woman might have been was a small roll of money stuffed in one of her socks. This minor detail suggested the victim was a sex worker. Detectives also suspected she had died weeks prior because of the advanced state of decomposition. To their surprise, the coroner's report indicated she had died only a few days before. The body had been so badly mutilated, the open wounds on her chest allowed for parasites to swiftly take over. Authorities hurried to put a name to their Jane Doe. A search through recent missing persons reports didn't turn up anyone with the victim's physical description. It took fingerprints and dental records to find a match. They finally had a name. Linda Sutton. She was a 26-year-old mother of two. Detectives were disturbed by the level of brutality in the killing, but had few clues to go on. They classified the murder as an isolated incident. Likely because of Sutton's race and line of work, there was no proper search for her killer. As months passed and no other bodies with similar lacerations surfaced, police believed their assessment was correct. But Robin Gecht was far from finished. After Sutton's murder, he laid low to ensure the police weren't on his trail. In the meantime, he had three young children who kept him tied up at home. Steady construction work and regular satanic study also gave him and his followers plenty to do as they cooled off from that violent May night. But eventually, Gecht grew tired of waiting. A year after he killed Sutton, he explained to his followers that they would have to go looking for another victim. They needed to perform the rituals regularly to remain in good standing with the devil. On May 15, 1982, the 28-year-old once again prowled the streets with his crew. Brothers Andrew Cocorales and Thomas Cocorales, along with Edward Spritzer, all piled into the red van and drove off through the Chicago suburbs. Perhaps emboldened by the ease with which they evaded suspicion the year before, the group was more brazen this time. Instead of using the cover of night, they went out in plain daylight. The van circled the Elmhurst suburb that sleepy Saturday morning until its passengers laid their eyes on 21-year-old Lorraine Ann Borowski walking alone down the street. She was on her way to open the offices at the local Remax real estate office, where she worked as a receptionist. Baby-faced Spritzer was behind the wheel, likely a conscious decision by Gecht because of his unassuming appearance. That morning, Spritzer pulled up next to Lorraine and asked if she wanted a ride. The young woman turned down the offer. But Gecht wouldn't take no for an answer. In a matter of seconds, the men swarmed on Lorraine. She was taken captive and handcuffed to a wooden partition wall in the back of the van. Because it was still daytime, Gecht decided to carry out their attack in a motel where the group frequently got adjoining rooms for their rituals and parties. 
with four rooms in a row, he was confident that there would be no immediate neighbors to overhear what they were doing. The men somehow smuggled their victim out of the van and into a motel room, where the group subjected her to the same vicious attack as Linda Sutton. Lorraine was raped and mutilated. Then they disposed of her body. This time, however, Gecht made sure their victim was dead before dragging the body to a grassy corner of the nearby cemetery. Afterward, the group returned to Gecht's attic. For the second time, they performed their satanic ritual, including cannibalizing their victim's severed breast. But unlike Linda Sutton, Lorraine had people looking for her almost immediately. Her parents grew increasingly worried as the hours ticked by and their daughter failed to return from work and alerted the police. When the police concluded there was nothing in her history to suggest Lorraine might have left home suddenly, they declared her a missing person. While the search for Lorraine began, Robin Gecht made a seamless return to his life as a family man. He dedicated weekends to working on the front lawn while his children played outside. On Sundays, the family attended Catholic Mass, but it was all just an act, and Gecht longed to kill again. On May 29, 1982, he corralled his followers, and the red van crept back onto the Chicago streets. It wasn't long before they encountered 30-year-old Shui Mock walking by the side of the road. She just had an argument with her brother while driving back from work and demanded he let her out of the car. She waited for another relative to pick her up. Unfortunately, her relative never showed. Instead, a red van pulled up to the quiet street and offered her a ride. Shui Mok met her grisly death in the back of that van. Just like the others, Gecht demanded his followers mutilate her and bring back a piece of her body to the altar, tucked in the attic of his inconspicuous home. Shui Mok was reported missing, but authorities were still in the dark about the murderous cult preying on the city's women. Linda Sutton, Gecht's first victim, was the only one that had been found. Mock's body would not be discovered until September, followed by Lorraine's a month later. As far as police knew, Sutton's vicious killing remained an isolated incident, and the other women were considered missing rather than dead. However, that was about to change. As Gecht and his crew continued to evade detection, they grew more reckless. Their next victim would bring the group's nefarious activities to light. Coming up, Robin Gecht and his cult feel the authorities close in on them. Now, back to the story. By May of 1982... 28-year-old carpenter Robin Gecht had convinced his younger employees, 21-year-old Edward Spritzer, 19-year-old Andrew Cocorales, and 22-year-old Thomas Cocorales to take part in the ritualistic murder and mutilation of three Chicago women. Gecht led the young men to believe that these satanic rituals would bring them supernatural power. Only the first of their three victims had been found, leaving police with few clues about the killers. This allowed the cult to re-emerge and engage in a brazen series of killings only weeks apart in 1982. 
on the night of June 13th, Gecht's red van was on the prowl yet again, seeking to terrorize a fourth unsuspecting woman. This time, the killers found 23-year-old Angel York as she walked along the streets in the north side of Chicago. As soon as the coast was clear, the men dragged Angel into the back of the van. Then, Gecht ordered two of his followers to handcuff her in place. The men raped Angel as she pleaded for mercy. Her desperate yells for help only encouraged Gecht. At one point, he handed her a knife and promised not to kill her if she cut off her own breast. Willing to do anything to save her life, Angel attempted to mutilate herself. But as soon as she took the knife to her chest, Gecht reportedly went into a frenzy and plunged the blade into her himself. After raping her again, the men allegedly duct-taped Angel's chest wound and pushed her out of the moving van. Despite the vicious attack, Angel survived. She was able to tell the police everything she could remember. She told detectives what the group of men had done to her that night and that they drove around in a van, but some details were a blur. Still, her testimony was enough for police to make the connection to Linda Sutton's murder a year prior. Both victims showed signs of a common perpetrator, sexual assault, and, more disturbingly, a severed left breast. Authorities finally realized that they had not just one serial murderer on their hands, but a group of sadistic men capable of unbelievable violence. But even with Angel York's account, chances of apprehending the group were slim. Investigators decided to stick with what they knew, so far, the attackers had targeted two sex workers that they were aware of, Linda Sutton and Angel York. Weeks passed without new clues or further attacks. They suspected the killers might have gone dormant again, spooked by the information Angel York provided. The reality was that Spritzer and the Cocorellis brothers were burnt out. Though Gecht grew more bloodthirsty with each killing, the other young men were consumed by guilt. They wanted out, but were terrified about what Gecht or the devil might do to them if they stopped. Though they might not have truly believed in the devil at the beginning of Gecht's indoctrination, they now wondered if their leader could really contact Satan. His depravity knew no bounds. So despite their growing apprehension, none of the young men turned on Gecht. He had them in the palm of his hand, and he knew it. The final week of September 1982, Shui Mock's body was finally found in a field near a construction site. She bore the familiar signs of mutilation that immediately linked her to the previous women. But yet again, Shui Mock's body didn't offer any information that would narrow the search for her killers. However, it did reveal that the murderers didn't just target sex workers. Women from all walks of life in the Chicago area began to live in fear of becoming the next gruesome killing. Gecht loved the attention and was unfazed as the police investigation picked up steam. By that point, he felt bulletproof. He was the devil himself. He could do whatever he wanted. On August 28, 1982, the 28-year-old and his followers returned to the streets in search of their fifth victim. This time, the men strayed out of the quiet Chicago suburbs and returned to the city's underbelly. 
That night, Gex Van cruised the deserted industrial areas where they knew they could attract their most vulnerable targets, sex workers. It wasn't long before they found their youngest victim yet, 18-year-old Sandra Delaware. As usual, the men swarmed the girl and forced her into the back of the van. They used a shoelace to tie her wrists behind her back. Under Gecht's orders, they proceeded with their attack that by now had become a demented routine. Over the course of the night, Sandra was subjected to unimaginable abuse and was then discarded. In Gecht's satanic chapel, he and his men performed their sick cannibalistic ritual. The next day, Sandra's body was found under a bridge on the Chicago River, with a bra tied around her neck. The teen bore the same distinct injuries Shui Mock had. The coroner estimated she had died a mere six hours earlier. After Sandra was identified, friends mourned the tragic death of a bright and generous young woman. Her life had been plagued by circumstances that forced her to the streets and into the clutches of Gecht's sadistic crew. But while his followers might have felt some guilt, Gecht was elated. To him, the women they hunted were not people. They were only tools to strengthen his connection to Satan. Driven by sadistic madness, the summer of 1982 became Gex, Spritzers, and the Cocorales' most prolific period. Just days after Sandra's murder, they abducted 30-year-old marketing exec Rose Beck Davis. Her attack was especially brutal, even for Gex and his followers. On September 8, 1982, Rose's body was found in an expensive part of the city near Lakeshore Drive covered in blood. Examiners determined that she had been stabbed, raped, and beaten with an axe. Not only did she have wounds on her chest, but there were also punctures in her abdomen. Her face had been beaten beyond recognition. The people of Chicago were appalled. Gecht, who desired complete control above all else, now had an entire city in fear of him. Yet the depths of his evil continued to go unnoticed by his family and neighbors. No one suspected he was capable of violence. In fact, as the year went on and Gecht's construction work dried up, many people even felt sympathy for him. Meanwhile, residents all over Chicago began to panic. There was more pressure than ever before on the authorities. But at that point, local police were no closer to capturing the killers than they had been months earlier. By the time the investigation had kicked into high gear in late 1982, Gecht's personal life had imploded. The carpenter found himself completely out of work. He fell behind with the rent and faced eviction from his landlord. For a few months, the cult stopped killing as Gecht attempted to repair his crumbling financial situation. But all the free time that his unemployment provided eventually proved to be too tempting. More stressed and angry than ever, Gecht itched to take the red van out on the streets again. On October 6, 1982, the 28-year-old grabbed his shotgun and ordered Spritzer behind the wheel. The group roamed the streets for hours that night. They found no suitable victims out alone, but Gecht was determined to vent his murderous rage any way he could. Without warning, he pointed his gun out of the van's window. He wanted to play a twisted game, one where he decided to play God. 
he told his frightened followers that the next person he saw would die. When Gecht spotted two men in a phone booth, he ordered Spritzer to slow down. According to Spritzer, as the van passed by, Gecht fired several rounds out the window. He fatally shot one man, 28-year-old Rafael Tirado, and seriously injured the other. His followers were shocked. They couldn't see how this random killing served any ritualistic purpose. Gecht was unhinged. They sat in stunned silence as the van sped away from the scene. They didn't dare say a word against Gecht, even as he told them he wasn't finished playing his game. They were still hunting for a female victim, and once again, Gecht was leading them. On that chilly October night, 20-year-old sex worker Beverly Washington emerged from the shadows to see the van's headlights slowly pull up the street. She likely knew there was a killer on the loose, but she desperately needed money. Maybe in spite of her better judgment, she approached the driver's side window. Gecht tried to downplay his excitement. To Beverly, he came off as nervous. When she told him how much she charged, Gecht immediately offered her more. But before she could say another word, he pulled out his gun and ordered her in the back of the van. Terrified, Beverly did as she was told. Once she climbed into the back, he demanded that she undress. He then handcuffed her wrists together and sexually assaulted her at gunpoint. Afterward, Gecht presented Beverly with a handful of pills and told her to ingest them all. Beverly did what he asked, and soon her eyelids grew heavy. The last thing she saw was Gecht holding a piano wire over her. Just as she slipped into unconsciousness, a sudden fear of death gripped her. She wondered if her eyes were shut for good. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two on Robin Gecht and the Chicago Rippers. We'll see how the cult's summer of violence escalated and how they were finally stopped. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Cults, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Cults on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Cults was written by Edlyn Ortiz, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, and stars Greg Paulson and Vanessa Richardson. 